0: How can pastors of predominantly white congregations faithfully address racism from the pulpit? Carolyn Helsel teaches preaching at Austin Presbyterian Theological Seminary and is a minister in the Presbyterian Church USA. In her doctoral work, she developed a hermeneutic for preaching about racism. You can find that research in her book entitled Preaching About Racism, A Guide for Faith Leaders. In this interview, we discuss her work, which offers help for thoughtfully, sensitively, and biblically addressing racism from the pulpit. You're listening to The Distillery at Princeton Theological Seminary. Carolyn, thank you for coming today and sitting down to talk with me. I know you're here on campus for the um, Engel Institute of Preaching, where you've been teaching, and I'm grateful you've taken the time to come down and talk about your most recent book. Why this book? I mean, why why write this, and who's it written for?
1: This book comes out of my own sense of call, actually, the kind of call that keeps coming back again and again when you wish that God wouldn't call you to do something, and nevertheless, God keeps urging you in this direction— as a 15-year-old I was called to preach uh, as a as a minister of word and sacrament and it wasn't until I was in seminary that I became aware of racism as not something that had been taken care of by the civil rights movement mm-hmm. but something that was still ongoing a deep pain a deep wound that was still current in our churches and in our society After seminary, I served on the U.S.-Mexico border for a year doing hospital chaplaincy, Mm -hmm. then was in a a church in San Antonio. And then I came back to serve the seminary where I got my MDiv as associate director of admissions. And uh, with conversations on campus and conversations around the admissions table, this question about race and racism kept coming up again and again again. And so, at the height of the Great Recession, I said goodbye to a great, steady job and decided to pursue PhD studies, just as a way of trying to answer this question: How mm-hmm. do I do this? So, again, it was the sense of call that I felt God kept putting in front of me, as saying, "You need to, you need to investigate this. You need to study this." And so, this book comes out of those uh, the ten years since then of trying to think about this and practice it, and talking with people of faith and talking about it with congregations, with pastors. So my first book, Anxious to Talk About It, Helping White Christians Talk Faithfully About Racism, came out, and I've been using that with churches and congregations. It's really meant for lay people. But this is the book, Preaching About Racism, that I really went to my doctoral studies to write in the sense of trying to help preachers think Mm -hmm. through Our hermeneutics, how to think through our theologies, how to think through our own inability to see racism right there in the scriptural text and to see racism in the world around us. Mm Because as preachers, you're constantly being asked to interpret not only the text, but to interpret the world and then to somehow bring these things together in a way that brings good news to Mm -hmm. the people right there in front of you. So this is the book that I've written for preachers that I hope will give them a framework for thinking through that, that will give them concrete tools for writing sermons that can mm-hmm. help open up this con- this conversation in their congregations. That's great. One of
0: the things you point out in your book is that clarity is essential when it comes to talking and preaching about racism. And so we know there's no perfect definition, but for the sake of our conversation, can you give us your definition, like how you're using that
1: term? Sure. Clarity is really hard because the meaning of racism has changed over time. The definitions that we use, the common sense understandings of what Mm -hmm. racism means shifts. So just me saying a new definition doesn't translate into hearers' minds as, aha, now I see what racism is. Now I know what it means. But in terms of the way that I use it, I understand it as a historical ideology that is rooted in justifications for enslaving African Americans and a system that has continued on through the present day in our justifications for segregation and our understandings of why things are the way they are. Mm -hmm. So it's not just hateful words, hateful actions. It's not just groups who are self-avowed white supremacists. Mm -hmm. It's all throughout our society in cultural and material ways and in spiritual ways. A lot of the anti-racism workshops that you may attend uh, may not mention the word sin, for instance, Mm -hmm. but from our, our traditions of rich theological insight and what Does sin look like? Uh, We have a a great repertoire for understanding just how deeply mired we are in this, and that it's not something that's just a social issue, but is deeply connected to our faith and our fallenness as a people.
0: So, this is audio, and if someone's never met you, they would not know your ethnicity. So, you are a white woman can you talk about the significance of your own racial and ethnic identity for your work?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. As a white person, there's been plenty of times when I've wanted to not talk about race. Uh, The first 20 years of my life that I thought I shouldn't talk about race, it was impolite. It was assumed that to name race or to name my own race was to be racist. To claim being white was somehow a signal of white pride. So, to name being white has come as a part of a journey of seeing that I can't deny being white. I can't Mm -hmm. wish it away. I can't pretend that I'm not white because being white in this society continues to give me unfair advantages that I didn't earn. And me trying to deny that or to pretend that I'm not white does injustice to the experiences of people of color who live in the world in very different ways than I do. Mm-hmm. So my ethnicity or my my race is important to me now in the sense that it's a reminder that the world is operating on a number of different levels. And as much as I want my intentions to be true and good. I know that I'm being seen and received in this world not only on the basis of my intentions, but also on the ways that I act as part of a larger group. So Mm -hmm. I know that it's not just my intentions that matter, but Part of of how people receive me is part of my ethnicity and and my power as someone who has benefited unjustly from this racist Mm -hmm. system.
0: You start your book in a very interesting way. You say that preaching about racism needs to come from a place of gratitude rather than shame or guilt, but gratitude. So what makes gratitude the right
1: starting point? I think this is where you really hear my training as a preacher. Mm -hmm. Because as preachers, we know that we have a really bad rap when people use the word preachy in society, Mm -hmm. it's typically very negative. It means someone's trying to guilt you into something. Someone's being self-righteous, and they're trying to make you live differently and trying to shame you into something. And as preachers, we try to change that perception By emphasizing that we're offering good news, that we're empowering listeners, that we're helping to comfort people who experience oppression in a number of different ways, that our function as preachers is to bind up the brokenhearted, to free Mm -hmm. the captives. So I focus on gratitude for a number of different reasons. But one of the reasons is that as preachers, when we talk about something as terrible as racism We need to do it in a way that helps listeners feel the grace that God has already put before us and is empowering us to draw from in responding to the world, that we don't live out our faith out of guilt or out of shame, but we live it out of a gratitude for what God has already done ahead of us and for Mm -hmm. us. And that includes when we're talking to white people about racism. So often I feel that as white people, it's a little bit easier if we just kind of distance ourselves from bad white people, the others that we feel are really guilty of racism, and that as long as we are doing certain things, then we are are good white people. And it's important for us to not operate out of that shame or that guilt to say, well, I'm always going to be a bad white person, so I need to do this or that to make me feel better about myself but rather to say, no, you know, we're all making mistakes. We're going to continue to make mistakes. And so rather than saying, I'm going to operate out of this guilt or this shame to make myself feel better, I'm just operating out of the gratitude that I feel for God having invited me into this work in the first place. The gratitude of receiving the gifts that others are being willing to share with me despite the obstacles that come in our way that prevent us from being able to see one another in community. So it's, it's, a, it's a complicated feeling. Gratitude is not something that's obvious or intuitive when you're talking about something like, like racism. But once you kind of dig deep and you feel that, okay, this shame, this guilt is not going to sustain me long term, We need to be able to go deeper and root ourselves in a sense of gratitude that we cannot by ourselves save ourselves. And we're not doing this to make ourselves good. We're doing this only because we're so thankful that God has already made this possible for us Mm -hmm. to do.
0: You named 10 myths about racism that make talking about it difficult. We we can't go through all 10, but can you talk about one or two of those that you feel are particularly pervasive?
1: I think one of the biggest myths that's not named in the book, but I think is a summary of several of them altogether, is the myth of the good white person, that Mm -hmm. there is such a thing as a good white person, and if only we are that, then we can stop feeling bad. We can stop worrying about whether or not we're racist. We can stop feeling uncomfortable around people of color. We can stop worrying about what we say. And that myth is so prevalent for a number of different reasons. One of them is, is our history as a society. We have this civil war that we fought, and so people who have uh, a long uh, legacy of Northerners in their background can say, well, we fought on the right side of history. We were, <laughs> My ancestors fought and died uh, for the Union, and so I can't be racist. My family never owned slaves, and we fought against slavery. So we have already these myths of the us and the them, the the good white people and the bad Mm -hmm. white people. That continues on today when we assume that it's just KKK members or the white supremacists who are marching and unite the right rallies. These myths that we assume racism is somehow only out there. It's only them and they're the ones that need to to worry about it. And it's such a pervasive myth and, and it's something that Prevents us from being able to see how we are continually making mistakes and we're continually complicit you know i've I've heard people of color talk about how it's progressive whites who do the most damage in this work against racism mm-hmm. because uh, we who see ourselves as progressive feel we've already got it, so we can't be racist, so we are defensive when people challenge us so again, naming that myth, naming the myth of the good white person is important so we ourselves don't ever feel that we've arrived, that we're continuing to open ourselves up to being challenged, to say, yeah, this is what I feel right now, and this is what I'm going to say. And at the same time, you might see it differently, and that's okay too. And we're going to continue to learn and grow in our relationship, and I'm going to continue to be open to ways that I may be uh, heard in a way that's hurtful, that I may say something that might be caught up uh, in, in another story that is bigger than myself. So let me give you a, an example of this myth in action. A few weeks ago, I was speaking at a, a university in the Midwest, and as part of this lecture series that I was speaking uh, at, I shared a story that I share in my first book about having interviewed a Texas state representative who had been pulled over by the police, and when I'm sharing this story in front of everyone at the lecture, I describe the man that I'm interviewing as tall and intimidating. Now, I go on and tell the story, and it's a, a moving story. It's a, it's important, and at the end, I had one of the uh, women there in attendance, a woman of color, come up to me and say, you know, I really just have to say one thing to you. You know, you use the word intimidating when you were talking about that state representative. And, you know, that's that's a problem for me. And my immediate reaction was to be kind of defensive and to minimize her concern. Well, I mean, he, I just meant that he was tall and because he was dressed so nicely and he's a he's a state representative. And, and I found myself trying to justify it to her and to justify it to myself. I went home that night, and I was kind of grumpy and irritable about it. And the next morning, I'm supposed to preach in their chapel at this college, at this university. And uh, so I get up in front of this chapel full of students and faculty and administrators, and I say, I'm going to say something that I didn't really want to preach about. But the text that we're preaching from is 1 Corinthians 13, where we talk about love does not insist on its own way. Hmm. and part of love not insisting on its own way means that we have to be open to hearing about the perspectives of others and loving one another by saying, I may be wrong. And so last night I said this word, intimidating, and I had someone else challenge me on it, and I didn't feel good about that. I felt like I I, I was right, but if I really move towards love and not insisting upon its own way, then I need to listen to that and say, thank you. And I'm sorry. And I'm going to do things differently. And of course, as someone who talks about race and racism with people, you don't want to stand up in front of a group full of people and admit that you've screwed up and (laughs) make mistakes. (laughs) But it was important as an example to say, that's what this process is like. It's continuing to do this work to step in it and to have people call you out and to say thank you and to keep going even though you make mistakes Uh, and not insisting on our own way, but learning to love by being open to how we ourselves are still learning. You
0: point to an important challenge for preachers when you say in your book, part of the problem in preaching about racism is that what we know of racism today was not present in the biblical text. So if that's the case, how can anyone preach about racism
1: biblically? It's a great question. I have a whole chapter in this book about preaching biblically. And I come to it from having heard that phrase, biblical preaching, and kind of unpacking its origins of coming out of kind of more evangelical circles, Haddon Robinson being one of the preaching professors uh, who talks about biblical preaching. And one of the assumptions behind that phrase is that the Bible can only ever mean what it meant. So it kind of has this interpretive value of only what it originally meant and that we have to somehow unearth that and and share that with people today. But of course, even back in the scriptures we see signs that people were interpreting Scripture differently from Mm -hmm. one another. Mm -hmm. Jesus and the Samaritan woman having their conversation about about the mountain. Mm -hmm. Jesus with the scribes and the Pharisees and the Sadducees having different understandings of the resurrection from the dead. People already in the Bible are interpreting other scriptural texts differently. So we know that there's not one way of interpreting the Bible, and that we all have a responsibility within our communities to interpret Scripture. So it's important for us to think about how do we read Scripture, and how do our communities shape and maybe blind us to other ways of seeing the Scripture present. So for instance, if you've grown up in a white context, and you never hear race or racism preached about in your in your church, it may be because your experience as a white person has blinded you from being able to see it in the scriptures. So helping people be able to see again, how can I reinterpret this? How can I see this with new eyes? And to hear what what good news is present in the scripture for us to lift up how we can live anew today. So it's important that we acknowledge our communicate our, our communities of interpretation, mm-hmm. and how that impacts how we read Scripture.
0: Do you have a story of how you've navigated that yourself?
1: Sure. One of the most pressing moments was the Sunday morning after George Zimmerman was acquitted back in 2014. I was preaching for a a church outside of Boston, and I woke up to the news that he had been acquitted, and it was one of those moments that shocked me. Later, talking to friends uh, of color, they told me it wasn't a shock to them, but it was a shock to me when someone who had gone out actively to chase down someone and who killed them to be not held not responsible for that person's death. It seemed like such a shock to me and I thought how do I how do I talk about this in this congregation? How do I name this in this sermon? My sermon that morning was on the good samaritan, which was the hmm. lectionary text. And so on the drive from my home to the the church, I thought again about kind of this threefold framework that I'd already been working on at that point in my in my dissertation writing process about recognizing racism, recognizing ourselves as racialized, and then finding some way to recognize gratitude. So turning to the Good Samaritan and recognizing racism, I invited us to consider Trayvon Martin as the man left for dead by the robbers, the man left by the side of the road. And I said, you know, what if rather than coming to the aid of this man left for dead, what if we as the media, we as a society came to the robbers and bound their wounds and took pictures of their wounds and said, look, they were acting in self-defense. What if we took this Good Samaritan story and turned it into the anti-Samaritan story and showed how we are somehow implicated as a society for allowing this to happen and allowing these robbers to get away without Hmm. criminal conviction? Hmm. But moving towards gratitude... Required returning to another African theologian's insight, Augustine of, of Hippo, who uh, is from the, the from North Africa, and Augustine's interpretation of this text was to say that it is Christ who comes ultimately to the man left beside the road; that it is Christ who heals and binds up his wounds. it is Christ who has that balm that heals and that we ourselves are the ones left for dead by the side of the road. And that in considering this from our own context, it is we who need Christ Mm -hmm. to come and heal us from this sickness of racism. So this was one way that just trying to see in this scripture text ways that we can point out the ongoing challenge of dealing with racism today and in society, and how we can point to some good news of God's hope for us in Christ.
0: You say it's important to talk about racism as sin, but you also say that we can't just throw around sin language, right? So could you talk more about that, the relationship between racism and sin?
1: Sure. One of my doctoral seminars at Emory was with Joy McDougall on Theologies of Sin, and What it did was expose me to a number of different theologians who have tried to grapple with what exactly do we mean by sin and how can that help us understand the world in which we're living in today. And as I did additional research for, for my work, finding words from, say, George Kelsey, who was a professor of Martin Luther King Jr.'s at uh, Morehouse. And George Kelsey wrote a book called Racism and the Christian Understanding of Man, and he talks about white racism as an alternative faith system. And he's lifting up racism as idolatry, Essentially, And idolatry is a word that we have from Scripture, and we know as a sin. It's named in the big top ten of the, the commandments. And yet, trying to think through, what are the ways that whiteness continues to serve as an idolatry? Ways that we lift up and worship certain standards of beauty or, or cultural standards, Eurocentric cultural standards, as somehow being uh, worthy of our, our worship rather than turning to other cultures and other traditions as being sources of wisdom and insight and goodness. There are ways that we can let this understanding of sin as idolatry help us see those connections with today, with how racism becomes a form of idolatry in our lives today. Other metaphors for sin that that I, I talk about in the chapter in the book include racism as estrangement, and racism as bondage, and estrangement, again, is a a biblical concept. Uh, We we talk about the Apostle Paul having written about Christ breaking down the dividing wall between us and how we are separated from God by our, our sin, but estrangement also names how we as Christians are estranged from the body of Christ. By separating ourselves from the bodies of other Christians, our ongoing segregation in our churches and in our neighborhoods attests to this deep estrangement that still exists as a result of racism. And so not just naming sin as as an individual act, but as something that is a status, something that is the way the world is right now, the brokenness that we can see around us, which points to our, our need for a Savior, that we don't just need someone to redeem our individual sins, but we need a Savior who can save us and save our world and save our society. And finally, understanding racism as as bondage, talking about being a, a slave to sin, as we hear about in the New Testament. Um, this understanding of, of bondage really points to the fact that Sin is something that marks our very bodies. So as as white people going through the world, we are often habituated to respond to the bodies of others in ways that reflect this sin. So white people who automatically draw our purses closer, closer to our bodies when a black person walks next to us, even without thinking about it, is a testimony to this this, in, this bondage of sin that habituates our bodies mm. to respond in, in these racist ways. And also for the people of color whose bodies have been marked by these meanings of, of suspicion and criminality, that racism marks people in this way that cannot just be confessed and we do away with, but is something that, again, We need a Savior who can redeem us. M. Sean Copeland is one of the theologians that I turn to, and she she points out how we don't have a Savior who did away with all of our differences and who erases the colors of our skin, Mm -hmm. but who in his raised body has these markings, who himself is marked, and who brings all of us into his body. And and that is the good news, that we have a Savior who is embodied and who unites all of us to himself in his body.
0: Now I'm going to ask the question that every pastor is probably going to ask, which is, what are concrete strategies for writing sermons
1: that address racism? So the framework that I encourage people to think about is the challenge of recognizing racism in in the sense of understanding what it is we're talking about, knowing that people have their different stories that they're bringing to this. The second part is recognizing ourselves, helping your listeners understand themselves as racialized and, and reconsider how they move about in the world and how that's impacted by racism. And then this third movement of recognizing gratitude and trying to find some way of linking us to a sense of gratitude in the sermon as kind of an overarching framework for interpreting the scripture interpreting the society interpreting what your your congregants are going through so, with that interpretive strategy, then turning to some of the other scholars who have written about ways of forming sermons. So, Unju Mary Kim, for instance, in her uh, Preaching the Presence of God, talks about a, a spiral form of a sermon, which is a way of indirect conversation, indirect communication, where maybe you tell a story. And then you tell another story that's a little closer to home. And then finally you tell a story that just that almost names the situation, but maybe not quite. Okay. And this indirect way gives people the space to further kind of discover it on their own, to have that kind of aha moment. There's also some other resources available. I talk about Dr. David Camp, his work on a uh, White Ally Toolkit, and one of the things that he talks about is this method of race, R-A-C-E, uh, which includes reflecting on our own experiences of change of asking about other people's experiences, of making a connection to others, and then expanding their stories. So for what that looks like with preaching, it means having your own story be part of the conversation, letting listeners know your own journey of how you came to recognize racism, and then inviting listeners to consider their own stories And if you have had a conversation or you know already what some people may be thinking about or some of their stories that you've already heard, being able to make a connection, as as in to say, I had this feeling, I, I half agree with you, or I understand this or that. But then you're going on to that E, that expand, to say, and also and you're helping people make that that connection to another story making the connection with with scripture and making the connection with theology so that persons are both hearing their own story reflected mm-hmm. they're also learning from you and how you have changed and they're they're thinking about other ways that we can be in community with one another And again, returning to that idea of gratitude, not letting our own shame in our own lives be what motivates us Mm -hmm. uh, and trying not to shame our listeners, but, but being able to root our own work in gratitude so that we can sustain this work for the long haul.
0: You've been listening to The Distillery at Princeton Theological Seminary. Interviews are conducted by me, Dale Rounds. And me, Sherry Osting Our producer is Nee Otto abrams and our assistant producer is Amar Peterman. The Distillery is part of The Thread, an online platform with resources on culture, spiritual formation, and leadership. To find out more, visit thethread.ptsem.edu. You can subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or Stitcher. And while you're at it, Leave us a review and let us know how we're doing. Until next time, thanks for listening.